Phil, pleasure to be speaking with you this morning and thanks for the opportunity of being able to share your insights. I thought we'd open up our discussion by exploring a number of key issues that are prevalent across the business community at the moment, in particular labour shortages as a result of COVID have led to pay increases, I think, of between 10 to 15 per cent, and particularly in the law, the sector of law. I, th I thought we'd start with that. I'd be interested to see how you think that trend's going to play out over the next coming three or four years. Yeah, no, really interesting question, Rob. Labour shortages are not an issue, they're the issue at the moment. I was talking yesterday on the Skills Board with Business New South Wales and they were saying their latest survey, 75% of businesses have acute labour shortages, not just labour shortages, but acute. And up in the hospitality and uh, food area, uh, in advanced manufacturing, it's well up in the 90s. So that's their big concern. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of evidence other than a few sort of ad hoc things in the paper about wage increases, but they must come. It's inevitable. Uh, and I reckon this is going to be the big issue for the next six months. It's, it's really hurting business now. And it's not contained. I mean, it's everywhere. It's out in the regions, it's in the cities, it's in the coffee shops, it's in the top four accounting firms. Uh, you've seen the lawyers already start to throw money at it. You know, it's, it's a huge issue and, and the, uh, the Business New South Wales guys, in fact, are going to do a special study on that uh, in the next month or so. Equally, inflation as a result of consumer spending and the expected economic rebound that's predicted for the next 12 months is on the radar of corporate Australia. Take me through your perspective on this and perhaps your evaluation on the strength of the economy in general. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the Reserve Bank's losing the battle with the bond markets. Uh, clearly, nobody believes them and they're putting their money where their, their mouth is. Uh, and I think we've only seen the beginning of it. I mean, there's huge liquidity in the, in the investment sector. There's huge liquidity in the household sector. Uh, there's labour shortages which are going to have to see a wage increase response. Uh, and if we don't have significant inflation in the next couple of years, I'll be absolutely astounded. Now, now for SCA, that's great news. It's the best thing that could happen to us. Uh, but I think for the economy generally, unless our government, and particularly the Reserve Bank, get onto it, uh, I can see some real issues around that. And, you know, election middle of next year, or March, April next year, I think that's going to come out as a huge issue. So while I don't personally dread it, I think we, I don't think we're back to the Keating days, but I think we've got some very interesting times ahead of us. And then in terms of population growth, how long do you think it will be before that rebounds to where it was two or three years ago? Well, you know, it's driven the economy for the last three decades, and, and we tend to forget that. Uh, but I think unless the government, governments, uh, and we've seen what they're up to at the moment, can really get their head across this issue and start to open the borders and bring these people back. I mean, yeah, I, I say it all the time, we, we can't get people to start nail bars and massage parlours and food businesses in the, in the shopping centres we've got. And the reason for that is that 90% of those businesses are started by people who come in from overseas. It's an easy first kick-off, that's what they do, and they either do it or they work there. Now, they're not coming in at the moment. And, you know, just watch this space, it's, a, it's blank, it's open. 
So I think, and, and I'm particularly strong on students, I think we really under, undervalue the contribution that international students bring to our economy, not just as students, but as workers. You know, they get in, they work hard, they do it very cheaply, and, and we've come to rely on them. Suddenly they're not there. Who's going to go and pick the fruit? Yeah, you and I are not going to go out the paddocks and pick the fruit. So it's a big issue, and it's a big issue across a lot of sectors. Yeah. And then in terms of the uh, attractiveness of Australia as a destination for global capital, do you think we've fallen in the ranking or do you think we're still seen as a safe haven? Uh, well, we've certainly fallen in China's ranking, but I think otherwise we're very much a safe haven. I mean, you know, not, notwithstanding the occasional hiccup, we've got a good democratic, good stable democratic uh, system, got a very good rule of law, uh, which investors always look at, that's very high on their list. Uh, we're, we're producing above index returns on capital uh, and you can see it even in the property sector. I mean, companies like GIC and Link buying into major malls in a big way. Uh, before I would be doing it, I think the malls have got a little bit of a, a, little bit of a way to recover, but you know, they're far-sighted people. Uh, and to see that money in the airport, to see that sort of money coming into the system, now I think Australia's going to be very much up there in terms of capital destination. And I think, you know, China's a blip. Before we move on, what do you see are the major opportunities for Australia and inversely the major risks or challenges on the horizon? I think coming to grips with wage inflation, which we're not used to, uh, plus and a minus, uh, is certainly being a bit undercooked at the moment. Uh, but getting on top of labour shortages in, in a market like this, which is so dependent on additional people coming into the country and we don't have that happening, to me that's the big one. I'm really concerned about that. Let's explore some of your insights uh, across the, the range of roles that you've been active in, beginning with your chairmanship of SCA Property Group, the offices of which we're sitting here this morning. Walk me through the major trends that you're observing from across the commercial property market. Uh, I'll deal more with the SCA end of the market. Uh, I mean, we've had a fantastic bounce back, much better than we expected. Uh, in fact, we issued an update and guidance uh, few weeks ago, which puts us in front of the trend pre-COVID. So if COVID hadn't happened, the line looks like that, and that's the line we're back on. And we've been quite off it for a while. So SCA looking good, but that's because of our business, and we'll talk about, a bit about that in a minute. I think the, um, the trend line for others, I think it's, it's, they're still below. Some of them have been big winners, particularly the household supply businesses. The agriculture sector, ironically, is having the best three or four years it's ever had. Uh, you've got to go back before the 50s, before the wool boom in the 50s. But now they've got this labour issue suddenly hitting them. Uh, universities, I'm on the Charles Sturt uh, Council. We've, our enrolments have gone through the roof and we've got no foreign students. Uh, so I think, you know, I think there's a real recovery happening post-COVID and I think that bounce back is going to be, consumer spending is going to be phenomenal. Uh, and I think the bounce back is going to be a lot stronger than most people think. But we've still got to learn to live with COVID. You know, a lot of people think we've got it beaten. We haven't got it beaten at all. It's still lurking around the corner. 
And I don't know what happens next time we have a really bad one. Uh, I guess you look offshore and see what their experience is, but nobody's had a 90% vaccination rate like we've got. Uh, so. Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should use West Australia as a test case. <laughs> I thought we'd uh, would would look at sort of the large format retail or, or shopping centre sector of the market in particular, given your role at SCA Property Group. It would seem to me that values have remained relatively resilient. Take take me through how the SCA Property Group business has managed to navigate the events of the past sort of eighteen months and what sort of a position it's in today. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're very different to the to the mall end of the market. I mean, we're convenience neighbourhood centres, so we don't have a lot of fashion. Uh, we're very, in fact, we try and avoid fashion. We're very much focused on supermarkets and services. We're also very much focused on outer, outer metropolitan and regional growth areas. So we're not in the cities. We're not in the centre of the CBDs, and we're not even in the affluent suburbs. We tend to position ourselves in the growth suburbs, generally low SES, uh, and, and that's worked unbelievably well for us. Even when we have shutdowns and even when we have to, um, to carry our tenants for a while, we've been able to recover it very quickly. Ironically, the biggest problem we've had is with the very few national fashion tenants that we've got. Uh, and we're not going to be pushed around by them. I mean, they're not that important to us. So we're, uh, we're taking a pretty hard line on them. Uh, so that convenience, local, when people have moved back to shopping locally, and you can see that trend online's gone through the roof and that's a strength for us. Perhaps we could talk about that in a minute. So our business was actually designed for the sort of problem that we've gone through. Uh, and we've done all right. We, we had tough times collecting rent for a while and that's a sort of a cash issue. We've had tough times because there's too much liquidity in the market and private, we'll talk about that too, I hope. Uh, private investors are going out there buying at cap rates that we can't even think about. Uh, but generally our business was very resilient, is the word. Uh, well positioned and resilient. Now, it wasn't all by design, but we got lucky. You mentioned online there. I'm interested to hear how SCA has sort of navigated the issues that have arisen and the opportunities that have arisen in managing the online v bricks and mortar dynamic. Yeah, it, it, it is an issue uh, in our sector. Um, we're very fortunate because when we were spun off out of Woolworths, we negotiated a whole lot of leases which include online sales from our centres in our in our figures for turnover purposes. So we're in good shape. And we've managed to get those leases extended through other areas. Uh, I mean, Coles last year, 2 billion. Woolies, 3.5 billion. Now, online is there. Uh, we're working with both of them on that. Again, it comes back to how we've positioned with those regional outer metropolitan centres. They are absolutely ideal for the last mile delivery. And that's what it's all about. And you often see you often see people talking about international trends. Now Australia is not the demographics here are not the same as they are in the UK, Europe and the US, you know. We're spread out. And if you're gonna try and supply regional centres, I mean Orange Bathurst, for example, from a central warehouse in Sydney, you're gonna fall flat in your face, and the 
you know, blind Freddie could see that. So I think it's, I think, again, we were fortunate in the sense that we had the right structure to fit into what's happening with online, particularly online grocery shopping, uh, and click and collect uh, and, and uh, pick up, you know, urgent pickup, uh, just working beautifully for us. Uh, plus the fact that, you know, we've got 100 centres uh, across Australia, so we're the biggest owner. So we're, we're a logical target for Coles and Woolies to work with trying out new ideas and we're very responsive to doing that. And we're happy to spend some capital changing our centres so that they are good pick-up centres. But, yeah, it's, it's worked well for us. The other subject that you mentioned is a lot of private capital coming into the market. Has that made it more difficult in being in a competitive position to purchase assets and, and ensuring that you don't overpay for them? Yeah, uh, it, has, it has in certain areas. I mean, you know, high net worth investors see a neighbourhood shopping centre that's a, a Woolies or a Coles with half a dozen, dozen shops. They're a gold mine. Um, you buy them, you put it in the bottom drawer, you get a cheque every month, you've got a 10-year lease. I mean, it's heaven, you know? And they've been paying prices that that, you know, on normal logical analysis are insane. I mean, cap rates of as low as 2%, uh, and they've done well. Uh, so we've really been driven out of that market a bit. I mean, our, our sort of hurdle rates start in the high fives, and if people are bidding four, three, we're out of the market. Uh, I think we found a solution. There are a lot of major capital advisors, capital providers, particularly internationals, who are very keen to get into this long while, uh, steady increase in income area. And we're looking at, we're considering a funds management arrangement where we would partner with them for the inner metropolitan sites, in particularly Sydney and Melbourne, but the other capital cities as well gear that to a level much, set up a joint venture, gear that to a higher level and we're prepared to gear our own portfolio. Uh, and I think that, that could give us the capacity to compete with those, with at least some of those private, private investors. There are about 1,200 supermarkets, what we would call really good shopping centres uh, in, in Australia. We've got 100, uh, nobody else has got more than about 60, 70. Uh, so there's still plenty of room there, uh, but our biggest our biggest competitor has certainly been the high net worth individual who's, you know, driven by a different investment uh, criteria. How would you assess the appetite of some of those global investors? We've seen the likes of Blackstone and BlackRock evolving their real estate teams here in Australia. Based on sort of your conversations and, and discussions, what's their sentiment like in deploying capital into Australia? Well, uh, they, they, they change all the time. I mean, they came here, they, they, they wouldn't even talk to us when they arrived. They had no interest in what we're doing. It was boring and defensive and, you know, why would you waste your time there? Now, they're all talking to us now. Um, and that's because this has been identified, particularly as you go through COVID, as a really good defensive position. Uh, but, you know, 1,200 assets in Australia that are really worth investing in, it's not a massive market, certainly not by overseas standards. Uh, so we're still a little bit under the radar. Uh, and you've only got to read the papers. I mean, you know, there are deals happening at the top malls. They're sort of sexy and exciting. 
Nobody's going to get too excited if we buy a centre in Bathurst or Mudgee. Uh, but, you know, those, those big Gold Coast deals, yeah, they're exciting, and QVB, which is a fantastic destination. It's the second most visited destination in Sydney after the Opera House, and Botanic Gardens is third, and the Fish Markets is fourth. So it's, it's really interesting that, that we've been under the radar and continue to be under the radar. Uh, office, big question mark around office at the moment. Are people going to come back into the CBDs? I think they probably are, but I think I'm in the minority. Industrial still going strong. And some of the alternatives, like the, uh, you know, the Ingenia retirement market, still just booming. And I think those guys tend to be looking for the higher returns where we're a long-term defensive play, so they're tending not to play in our market. Has the tenancy profile across any of the assets that you've got under management, has that changed at all? Yeah, we, I mean, we've, we've made about, we've got about a four billion portfolio now and probably uh, three billion, two and a half, three billion of that is acquisitions. And our, our strategy is to go and acquire a centre where we think the tenancy mix is wrong, too much fashion, not enough convenience, and convert it from quasi-convenience to almost fully convenience. So there's been a significant, and we did that with vicinity. We bought $600 million worth of their, mainly sub-regionals, but some neighbourhoods, uh, moved out the fashion and non-convenience stuff, put convenience in, uh, and we're getting the sort of results that we were looking for. So, yeah, there has been uh, very much through design and, and you know, commitment to what we do. And that's what we do. And we are good at convenience. We really know convenience. I'd have to say we're not that great at fashion. <laughs> Before we move on, SCA Property Group is a listed company. I'm interested to know, you talk to people and they say that there's too much red tape and too much corporate governance happening. You spend all of your weekends these days if you're on a public company board reading board papers. Do you find that is, a, is an issue at all? Yeah, it certainly is for me. But, but, you know, it's not an issue for some people. Some people like that. Uh, and, and that's fine. I, 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 like, I like getting on with the business. Uh, I've never been to, even though I'm a lawyer by background, uh, a failed lawyer by background, I, uh, I really don't enjoy that as much as I enjoy the real business business. But I am sympathetic in the sense that, you know, a strong, well-regulated market is a good market. Uh, and I think, you know, after the Royal Commission, we all got a bit of a surprise just how much bad stuff was going on at the top. Uh, and I don't agree with everything the Royal Commission said, but I do think it's, it's very healthy to have that broom go through. Uh, then you get things like terrorism. You know, every director now has to register and get a unique director number. It takes you half an hour. It drove me mad. I'm just, I'm not that good with all that stuff. But I finally got one on the first day, let me say. Uh, now, you know, they say that's to stop terrorism and, and Phoenix companies. I know it's not. I know it's the tax department looking for the director's fees to make sure they're not leaking. So I sort of don't really like too much of that, but I, I put up with it. Uh, would I do, would I go on to four listed boards if I was just coming out of retirement from the law firms? No way. No way. 
Uh, I, I, I do one, I might do two, uh, but no, no way I'd go for four because it, it, it is burdensome, unless you like it, and I don't. Some of the other issues are shareholder activism and, and short sellers. Do you have a view on, on either of those? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I go out and talk to our unit holders uh, and I make sure I talk to the big guys and I make sure I talk to the retail unit holders as well. We've got a very strong retail base because we were spun out of Woolies and our original shareholders were people who had Woolworths shares and they were given some SCA shares. A lot of them were given so few that it wasn't a marketable parcel, but we've cleaned them out or they've gone. Uh, and we've now got a very good, loyal retail base. So retail investors are important to us. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I regularly talk um, with, our, with our investors uh, and I'm getting, at the moment, I'm getting really good messages. Uh, they're very pleased that we've come out of COVID. They're very pleased that we're back in front of where we were pre-COVID. They love our management team. They keep telling us not to do anything else because we're really good at what we do. Stick to what you do. They buy us because we're defensive. They buy us because we're steady return, growth long-term, but, you know, no surprises. Uh, and I think, you know, that, that dialogue makes a lot of difference. Uh, we also talk a lot with the proxy advisors and we, I, I respect what they do. Sometimes they don't do what I want them to do, but I respect what they do. Uh, we, we haven't seen any, in, in our business, we haven't seen any short shorting or dis market, what I call market disruption. I've seen it in other businesses and I'm not sure I really like it too much, uh, but it hasn't bothered me, so I'll let it go through to the keeper. One of the other roles or positions that you hold is, is part of JP Morgan's Australia Advisory Council. What does the panel or the council meet about and, and discuss in those meetings? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting involvement. JP Morgan is a fantastic organisation and I'm, an, you know, I'm really proud and I mean that to, to be part of it. It's an amazing international organisation. Uh, it's a good advisory council. You know, Rod Eddington chairs it, Rob Priestley. Uh, also involved. It's um, actually Rob Priestley now chairs at Rod Eddington, still there though. Uh, we talk about what's happening in the, in the world, uh, not just in business, but also in other areas that might have significant impact on where we or the world is going. Uh, and they're really interesting discussions because you get a range of views from an eclectic range of people. I'm probably the most ignorant one there, so I tend to listen. Uh, we, uh, we do a bit of networking, you know, JP Morgan wants to meet somebody who's on a board, do you know X, and usually one of us does. Uh, a bit of mentoring, which I've really enjoyed. I'd like to be doing more of that, um, but I'm getting on a bit now, and they sort of like, they like younger guys to do the mentoring. Uh, and we don't get paid. And that was the best decision we made because we avoid all those conflict issues that would otherwise create a complex relationship. So I, I can quite happily bring JP Morgan into something without having any personal interest uh, in the sense of remuneration. So yeah, it, it's, it's great. I've really enjoyed it. It's a fantastic base uh, to operate from and you do need a base in the CBD, I've found. So it's either rent yourself an office or find, find something like that. 
And it's very collegiate. I mean, it's, you know, you look at JP Morgan from the outside and you think, oh, you know, big US investment bank, all self-important. It's not like that. I mean, there are a bunch of really interesting people uh, and it's, yeah, it's good fun working with them. There's been an enormous level of M&A and sort of corporate activity this year and last year as well. What do you think is driving that? Liquidity. Yeah, and I mean, we, we're obviously looking at it at the moment and uh, there's one company walking around saying after they're finished with their current deal, we're next, we'll bring it on. Uh, I think I think the liquidity is just there's so much liquidity that that you know the seventh wave and that's what the that's what the lawyers call it and, and that's the seventh wave in history not the seventh wave this decade uh, the seventh wave of M and I absolute boom for lawyers and David Freelander at uh, Mallison's talking about it the other day uh, but liquidity's brought it on I think uh, I think it can be a very good thing in the sense it's going to it's going to provide some really sensible rationalisation. Uh, and I think, for example, the airport deal, I think the airport got a really good price. I think they did really well, but I think it, the airport in the hands of the new group is probably a plus. I think they've got a longer investment term horizon, longer term investment horizon. But I think you're going to see some messes made along the way. Uh, and we're starting to see evidence of a couple of those now. Hopefully the market and the investors are smart enough to you know, avoid those deals. Uh, same with uh, some, some of the IPOs going through. Uh, I mean, there's some very, very good ones, but there are, there are some that won't be getting any of my money. So I think, uh, I think it's all about liquidity. I mean, there's just so much investment money around in this low interest rate environment, both here and overseas. And a lot of it's overseas backed. Uh, a lot of the activity is actually involves overseas investment. You know, on, even on our register, we've got about a 20%, 25% offshore institutional holding, and we're a very modest little company. You're also chair of the Australia Antarctic Science Council. For those of us who, who aren't aware of that or perhaps are not afraid with what it does, take us through the council and, and what's involved in, in your work there. Yeah, it's something I've been really interested in. I, I got involved in research and, uh, through chairing a, a, the Education Investment Fund, which uh, Peter Costello actually set up. They put $6 billion in a fund for research infrastructure and transformative university infrastructure. And we did some fantastic things. And then my good friend Joe Hockey wound it up in 2014, which I wasn't too pleased about, but still. So one of the things I got really interested in was Antarctic research because I saw just how important it is in terms of solving some of the biggest issues we've got, like climate change, uh, fisheries, the Southern Ocean impact on, on weather, things like that. So our job is to oversight, our official job is to oversight all of the Antarctic science that Australia is involved in. That role is morphing and we're now much more interested and that includes the work that people like the Bureau of Meteorology, CSIRO and um, uh, Geoscience Australia do, so that's the measuring and monitoring. That's now evolving a bit because we're really starting to recognise that science is the currency of the Antarctic Treaty. And Australia's got 42% of Antarctica under the, under the treaty. And science is the way that we're going to protect our sovereign interests. 
uh, and commercial interests. So, for, you know, border that goes to borders, that goes to sovereignty. Who's going to build the airport in Antarctica? We've got the land. We've got the opportunity. If we don't do it, the Chinese will be in there tomorrow. You know? And that'll be the only all-weather airport in Antarctica. So pretty important stuff. And a lot of that revolves around the sites and the feasibility of doing things. So some of the big projects we're looking at, which I think are really exciting, and I'll try and turn them into relevance. Uh, when it snows on Law Dome in Antarctica, they've worked out, I don't know how, because I'm not a scientist, but I know they've worked out, they've worked out that will mean there's probably going to be a drought in the wheat belt in Western Australia. And when it snows heavily in that area of Antarctica, it probably means you're going to get floods on the east coast. Now, how they've worked all that out, don't ask me. But it's really, the connections are really predictable. Another really interesting thing they're doing is the uh, million-year ice core. And what they do there is they drill down about 3,000 metres and they pick up an ice core that was formed a million years ago. And when they read these ice cores, they're an absolute map of what the weather, exactly what the weather was doing. Not speculate, an absolute map. And it, it's amazing the detail they can drag out of them. Now, it's been good to know what's happened in the last 500,000 years, but to know what's happened in the last million years gives us a fantastic ability to predict what normal weather patterns should be. So that, that's a project in Australia. I mean, it's a real privilege for Australia to be running that project. We've got international researchers from all over on that. Last one, just to, just to make it quick. One of the most important creatures in the world is the krill. It's the biggest biomass in the world. There's, there's no single species that even comes near the krill in terms of its total biomass. If you add all these little critters together, like a little prawn. And they basically drive the whole of the feed from the Southern Ocean, which then drives the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean, right? So if something happens to the krill, you're not going to be eating fish and chips. And to, to be able to research things like that, and I think the answer to the real... And, and, and the Antarctic is the biggest carbon sink in the world by moles. Yeah? Ten times Brazilian forest, which you hear about all the time. It's enormous. And the Southern Ocean, Antarctic, drives the weather. It's the answer... That, I think it's the ultimate answer to, to sequestering carbon. You've got the, the critical nature of the krill. I mean, there's some really big issues there. And Australia's right on the spot. I mean, we are the entry. Uh, so it's a fantastic opportunity. And... Uh, I, I love it. I mean, you can see I'm getting excited about it. I love it. And are you finding, given all of the uh, important issues that you raised there, are you finding that there's sort of more awareness and more investment being poured into the organisation? No, and that's, that's, that's my job. The original, originally the council was formed just to monitor the science. And that was a good idea to start with. But now we've got the plan, we've got the projects going. It's a matter of keeping an eye on them. I think the exciting thing is that for me and my, my group of colleagues to really get, really lift the profile of this. I mean, we've got to get the public on board. Everybody thinks the Antarctic's incredibly sexy and no, nobody knows anything about it. 
And when you talk to them, you know, even my cynical mates, they get excited, right? So I think there's a real opportunity with the public, there's a real opportunity with the investment community and the big super funds. I'm just starting to talk to the big super funds now about the potential of some investment in the Antarctic by them and by the companies that they invest in because it's a huge opportunity for carbon offset. Uh, and then thirdly, government. And, you know, we're in the Department of Environment. Department of Environment's a lovely department, but it's a spender. We are not close to the brain of the animal, the central agencies. You've got to get into PMC, you've got to get into Treasury, you've got to get into finance. Uh, and make them understand what a fantastic opportunity they have, not just to improve the world, but to improve Australia and to get re-elected. So that sort of nitty-gritty is what I'm about, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. I love it. It's the most enjoyable thing. The pay's shocking. Pay's shocking. They get paid more than their house. I get paid less than their housekeeper. But I love it. It's, and and I, seriously, I, I do think... I do think that, you know, I feel that I can make a contribution, and I think if I do, then I've done something that's important. Yeah. Changing subjects, the New South Wales Skills Board has oversight of the vocational education training sector here in New South Wales. What are you seeing in the jobs and training markets and how has VET responded to COVID and the impacts of COVID? I think in New South Wales we responded pretty well and, and credit to the Minister for that, Jeff Lee, he's, uh, he's a really good Minister to work for. Uh, they, were, they were responsive and they were flexible. The first thing that we did, we went out and got BCG to do a study, what's going to be hit hardest? and what can government do to stop that happening. And they came up with, in conjunction with the feds, they came up with JobKeeper. So forget about three-year courses, six-month courses, get people skilled, get them into a job, get them upskilled to improve, their, improve the job they've got now. And that was a huge success, a raging success, and everybody else copied it. So I think they responded very well. Now we've got a completely different ball game because as I said at the beginning, it's all about labour shortages. Bringing skills to bear on labour shortages, you're talking about short courses, micro-credentials, upskilling people. I mean, people in the aged care sector, you know, you go and talk to them down at the grassroots and, and you say, what's this? And they say, well, it's a terrible job. I don't get paid enough. Uh, it's really hard work. But I said, what's the worst thing about it? The worst thing about it is I don't have career progression. Right? I cannot become a manager, I cannot go up. That's crazy. If we had training courses for those people who work in aged care to become managers and supervisors, you know, zap, you've removed that problem. So it's not rocket science. Uh, it's a matter of finding the answers, finding them quickly and getting a government that will react to them. Peter Shergold and David Gonski did a really good review last year and that's put a lot of the track in. And one of the core things they said to us is, you're not talking to industry enough. You're often your cloud with the bureaucrats, you're not talking to industry. Go out and talk to industry and find out what's happening. And that's what we do now. I spend 90% of my time on the skills board talking to industry, like the meeting I mentioned with uh, Business New South Wales yesterday. And are you finding that they're more responsive industry now? They're actually listening and happy to engage and, and adapt? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And you, they're giving us their inner secrets. And they're saying, thank God you've come. Yeah, we've been trying to find you guys for 10 years. Where have you been? 
but now we're there, they're really keen to help. And, and, and I think they get a feeling that we can, now that we've got this going, I think there's a feeling that we can actually do something and we will actually do something. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's all starting to come together. In closing out our discussion, I thought we'd explore a few other aspects of your career. You're on a number and have been on a number of trustee boards like Botanic Gardens and New South Wales Public Purpose Fund and of course Charles Sturt University, which you mentioned, in addition to other not-for-profit boards and, and government boards. I'm interested to hear how you divide your time across these roles and what inspires you to become involved outside of just the traditional sort of corporate sector. When I left Minters, I, I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do next, but I wasn't going to do another law firm, I knew that. Uh, I thought, yeah, well, I'll get three top 50 boards and that, you know, a couple of hundred grand each from each of those and I won't have to work too hard and I can ignore the compliance, but I'll have a happy life. Thank God I didn't. It would have been the worst thing for me and the worst thing for those boards. It's just not what I'm cut out to do. So it took a while to work it out, but eventually I ended up with a balanced portfolio, so I had about a third of it was in commercial activity, uh, mainly around the property sector, but in other sectors as well. About a third of it was around universities, research and government, and I've tended to increase that as the opportunities have come. And the other third was not-for-profit. And that's been a fantastic mix for me. I mean, it's been interesting. I have felt I've been in positions where I can make a contribution. Uh, I've dealt with some fantastic people who I wouldn't have otherwise met, where if I'd have done the three top 50s, I just would have been meeting a whole lot of people I already knew. Uh, and it's been great. I mean, I've really enjoyed it. I, I thought, you know, in 2005, I'll go for 10 years, and here I am heading up for 20. Probably time to call it a day, but uh, yeah, no, it's been a fantastic experience. And, I'm just so lucky that I, I landed on that. Now, across a 25-year period, you were a managing director, managing partner, I should say, and then chief executive officer of Minter Ellison, one of the top-tier law firms in Australia. I'm interested to hear how you think the top-tier law firms or law firms in general have changed over the years. Yeah. Well, just, just on your question, I mean, I spent 15 years at Mallison's first and then short-time investment banking, then back to Midas. Uh, so it, it, it's the two, and, and they're quite different firms, but they're certainly both up there in the top league. Uh, it, I'm, I'm bloody glad I'm not doing it now. It's, it's a hard job for the guys who are doing that. It's a lot more international. Uh, it's a lot more, a lot more, like many, many, many times more. Uh, so you're probably spending most of your time out of Australia. Uh, it's a lot more competitive and intense. There's a lot more pressure on people. Uh, there was pressure on people in my day, but nothing like I see now. Uh, and I reckon, I reckon, and I keep in touch with a lot of the managing partners, I, I reckon today it's, it's, it's a tough job. You know, you've got to be very good and very capable, and I'm glad I did it in the 1980s and 90s. <laughs> Uh, rather than today, but yeah, but they're doing well. I mean, Australia's got a bunch of the best law firms in the world, which is, I mean, it really says something. Part of that's because we managed to get national firms very early. And when I first started doing that, everybody said, you're mad, it won't work. But it did work, and now all of them are national firms. Uh, and that means they're working from a fairly significant base. 
Uh, and they are brilliant firms and the talent in those firms is just awesome. There was an article in this morning's paper that basically said fifth year lawyers here in Australia get paid less than first year graduates over in the US at top tier law firms and there's been a real exodus and going to be an exodus of some of those fifth or sixth year lawyers, corporate lawyers in Australia to the US and the UK. What do you think should be done or could be done to keep that talent here in Australia and stop it from going offshore? Yeah, I wouldn't stop it from going offshore. I'd let it go offshore but then attract it back and that's really what's been happening since I was involved in the 70s and 80s. I mean, we used to take our best people and send them to correspondent firms in London and New York and they picked up incredible expertise and then we had to make sure we brought them back and the investment banks do the same. Uh, the key to it is getting them back uh, and we were pretty successful. I mean, Australia's pretty, Sydney, Melbourne, pretty good place to live. Uh, and, you know, you top, top tier law firm partners are making a million up, uh, you know, unless you really want to be wealthy, that pays for the groceries. So the prospects of partnership, I think, uh, you know, in a, in a good Australian law firm are, uh, are sufficiently good to track them back. But I'm all for sending them off. You know, if we become insular and don't develop our talent, uh, then we're not going to be able to mix it. Reflecting on your diverse array of career experiences, what are the fundamentals for achieving success, both from a personal standpoint, but then also from a professional standpoint? I mean, it's a bit around the journey that I've been through. You've really got to think through what it is you want to do and not just fall into the trap of doing what everybody else expects you to do. Uh, and that's the difference between, a, you know, a three top 20s and, and a portfolio like I've got. Uh, so you've, you've got to do that. You've, it depends what drives you. I mean, what drives me is I really like to think that I'm actually, and it sounds a bit corny, I really like to think that I'm actually making a contribution. And I get really chuffed, is the word, when these incredibly brilliant scientists that I deal with in the Antarctic say, oh, you're the guy we need to get us into Canberra. Yeah, well, that, that really, that, yeah, that, that does it for me. Uh, so I think that's important. Uh, I find... As I mentioned before, I, I find working with a diverse and eclectic group of people really stimulating. Uh, I really enjoy that. Uh, and at the end of the day, I won't take on a new position unless I, unless I think I can learn something. So something that so I haven't, for example, done any big law firms because I've been there, done that, and I'm not going to learn too much more. I've probably learned what I did wrong. But <laughs> so I've stayed away from that. But new learning experiences, when you get to my stage, you know, they're what get you up in the morning and you want to go to work. Yeah. So they're the sort of ingredients that have, that, have, that have made all the difference for me. And my final question is, what's the next phase of growth for SCA Property Group? And I suppose the second part of that question is, what roles or, or positions that you're not involved in now or companies that you're not involved now that you would potentially look to join or are interested in joining in the future? Well, I'll, I'll deal with the second one first. There's got to be some room for skiing, tennis and fly fishing, right? And I got a bit squeezed, so I'm probably in cutback mode rather than find a lot more mode. 
Uh, I've always wanted to do the Antarctic job, so I made an exception for that, and I love the Botanic Gardens. So I'm, I'm probably not looking. Uh, I've probably reached the stage where I want to do a bit more of the fly fishing and skiing now that the borders are open again. Our strategy hasn't changed much since we, since we listed, and our strategy was convenience, local, live local, love local, shop local, and it's just been a bonanza in COVID because everybody's shifted to that. So we got a bit lucky. So convenience, local, steady long-term distributions built on long-term leases with modest growth, but steady, reliable distributions. And that strategy served us really well, but things are changing. And I mentioned the, you know, the, our inability to get in and compete with the private buyers on some of those very valuable inner suburban, inner suburban um, neighbourhood centres. Uh, if we can do a funds management deal with a capital provider, gear it up, do a joint venture, gear it up, and access that new market, we know, because we've got the best management team in the business, in this particular area of the business, by far, we know that we can do really well with that business. So that, that's an obvious no-brainer for us. Uh, I think the other thing we're thinking of, well, I'm sure the other thing we're thinking about is the M&A market. I'm a little bit cynical because I, I'm not sure that there's anything we need to buy that would make us that much better. Uh, and I think it could muddy the water if we buy something that's got a whole lot of bits and pieces that we don't really want and you can't do anything with. So we're probably not an acquirer. Uh, we're a pretty attractive target, so we're watching that. I wouldn't mind if the right people bought us, but I'm certainly going to be standing in the way of the wrong people trying to buy. And I've got to be convinced that they know what they're doing. They've got a better management team than us and they can take this business and improve it. So M&A on the agenda there. Uh, I think, you know, there are 1,200 neighbourhood centres in Australia. We've got 100. I think we can easily get to 200. That then gives us quite a different scale from an international investor's point of view. And that's a major milestone. So I think it's time we took that one on. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the future, but I don't want to go off strategy. I mean, the strategies work so well in so many different times that I want to hold that strategy and, and just fine-tune it to move to the next stage. And I think, I think there's a lot of scope for us at the next stage. I can't ever see us going into the big malls. We have a different skill set. Uh, we've taken quite a lot of staff out of those companies at a, at a more junior level. So we know what they do, but I don't think we're better at it than they are. I think centre can do that better than we can do it. But I know we can do neighbourhoods better than centre. Not that they want to, but better than centre can ever do it. So I think, you know, we'll, st we'll stick to our knitting, but we'll start to do some things like funds management, which will change the character of the company uh, and give us our next growth stage. Phil Clark, AO, an absolute pleasure speaking with you this morning. Thanks so much for your time and look forward to seeing the next chapter both in your career and in the business of SCA Property Group. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, it's been good talking. Thanks.